But uh, yeah, we're in John uh, chapter 18 uh, today, and we're picking up where, where we were two weeks ago, where Jesus has just been arrested. Um, he was in the garden with his disciples. Uh, Peter uh, tried to cut off uh, one of the guy's ears. Uh, I think he went for the head and got an ear. Um, but uh, so, and then Jesus has been arrested. He's been taken to the high priest. Um, house where he's on trial, and in this uh, we uh, get John's account of this happening here in John 18. Um, now, this is one of the stories in Scripture that's included in all four Gospels. All four Gospels include this aspect of Peter denying Jesus, um, is what we're about to look at. And when we come to these kind of places in Scripture, these are the places where those that are skeptical of the Bible or want to, you know, throw shade on the Bible will point out that like, oh, well, the stories vary. The stories are different. The accounts are different. And so what we're going to do today is a little bit different. We're going to be digging into all four Gospels and looking at each of their different accounts of Peter denying Jesus. And our goal in doing this is looking at does this add up to something that we believe is a true factual event where they're all telling the truth? Or does this add up to they can't get their story straight? Um, and so as we dig into this, that's kind of where we're going today. So it's a little bit different kind of, of sermon today. Uh, but we're going to jump in to it here in John 18. And we'll read our passage for today first. So John 18, starting in verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple had known, was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And then we'll skip down to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of the disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. So here's John's account of what happened, okay? And we're going to look at the others in a minute. But the first thing we see in John's account that none of the others include are this mention of this other disciple who was there with Peter. None of the other three mention this disciple being there at all, um, which leads to a lot of speculation on who this other disciple is. The kind of oldest and most traditional and probably best accepted explanation is that this is John himself. Um, John, throughout the book, never refers to himself by name, um, but he usually refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, yeah, and, but here he just says another disciple, okay? And so, so some take that to say, well, it's probably not John, because if it was John, he would have said the disciple whom Jesus loved, and so then we ask those people, well, who do you think it is? 
And they say, well, we think it was probably, you know, it says that he was known to the high priest. Another, another thing they throw against it being John is how would a poor fisherman's son be known to the high priest, right? Like how would he have access to the courtyard? How would he be that well known? And so they kind of throw that against John as well about this being John. Um, so they say, well, maybe it was Joseph of Arimathea or maybe it was Nicodemus. Um, these were guys that ran in that circle who also kind of were following Jesus at this time. Um, so they would have had access. Uh, so maybe it's one of those guys. The problem with it being one of those guys is they were not in the upper room. So they were not in the garden. And so the odds of them finding out about Jesus' arrest in the middle of the night and then making it down there in time and going with Peter, as it says here, following Jesus in, are very unlikely that it would be one of those guys. Could have been, but probably not. Um, there's a, another option that's out there that um, I think is just comical. Um, and some people actually argue that this is Judas. Um, and, and so they're arguing that because, Judas, because through Judas, him denying G, his betrayal of Jesus, um, he knew the high priest, and that's how he was able to get in. And so he then goes and gets Peter in once Peter gets there. To which I just think, if Peter saw Judas at this moment, I'm pretty sure he would take his head off, right? Like, just knowing Peter, and he just tried to cut off a guy's head in the garden, and like, and Judas even wanting to bring Peter in if Judas was there. Like, I, I just don't see any scenario where, where this was Judas. Um, and so, so, yeah, I'm very doubtful in that. So I really think that this is John. And I think this is John talking here about himself. Um, and so how do we answer the challenges of how was John known by the high priest? Okay, so let's, let's deal with that. Scenario number one. John's father's fishing business was actually a pretty major business in town. Like they, they, he had employees, he had people working under him. Like it, it wasn't just like one guy with a boat and like peddling his fish on the side of the, of the lake, okay? Um, and so it, it would be likely that John's father's business might have had as a customer the high priest's house. And if you have an important customer in your business like the high priest then who do you send to be the salesperson to take care of that customer? One of your best employees. Who better than the heir to take over the company? So it could have been for John's whole life, he's been serving the high priest's household by bringing fish. If you deliver fish every day, you kind of get to know everybody in the courtyard. You get to know the servant girl that watches the door. You get to know these people, and they know you. And so, yeah, when there's something going on there, they're like, oh, yeah, he's good. He can come in. And then he comes to the door. He's like, yeah, let that guy in, too. So that makes sense to me. Another scenario is we know um, by putting the pieces together that John uh, was actually the cousin to Jesus. John's mother uh, was Mary, Jesus' mother's sister. Okay. And who was Mary and John's, John's mother? Who was their aunt from Luke? Huh? Elizabeth. Elizabeth was their aunt. And who was Elizabeth's husband? Zachariah the priest. And so even in the family, there's family connections that lead straight to the priesthood and the priest's group. So it could have been that John grew up as a kid because of his aunt hanging out there, right? And so 
It is not far-fetched that a fisherman um, would know people in the high priest's household. Now, a lot of you are saying, Wayne, that's all great, but what in the world does this have to do with anything, and why does it matter? And that's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Um, Because why it matters is this. If this is John, and John is saying that he was there and he was present, then that means what we have in John's account all the way through the trial and crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the resurrection is a firsthand eyewitness account. John was not reliant on anybody else for any details. What we have that he's given us is an eyewitness account saying, I saw this with my own eyes. And we know in just a little bit he's going to be at the foot of the cross. Because as he's at the foot of the cross, he looks at, Jesus looks at his mom and, and then looks at John and says, here's your new son, here's your new mom, take her into your house. And so we know that, that John was there at least at that point, and we know he was in the garden. And this piece tells us that, yeah, I think he followed Jesus all the way through the trial. And so as we read these things, we're reading not just secondhand information, but firsthand information by somebody that saw it themselves, that witnessed it, that is telling us what happened. And so reason number one to believe John was he was an eyewitness. So that's the first thing. Now, there's, like I said, there's differences in the accounts of Peter's denial as we look at the different Gospels. And so as we do this, um, I want you to pay attention to try to see which of, the, of these differences you can pick up on as we, as we read these other accounts. A couple of things to look for. I mean, some aren't big, right? Like, some mention there being a fire and others don't mention there being a fire, right? Like, ooh, that's going to really throw me off on believing if this is true or not, right? Um, but, think, but listen for these. How many times does the rooster crow? Listen for that one. Who makes the accusations against Peter? Who are the individuals that are listed that make the accusations against Peter? And then thirdly, what are the reasons for their accusations against Peter? What, what, what do they charge Peter with that makes him deny Jesus? Okay, so pay attention to these details as we read these accounts. First, Matthew, it is found in chapter 26. In verse 69, it says this. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. So no mention of other disciple getting him in or any of that part. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before, before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out uh, to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Okay? So you guys got the details from Matthew? All right, so now let's go over to Mark. And in Mark, it's in chapter 14. Verse 
And in Mark 14, uh, starting in verse 66, here is Mark's account. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to evoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Okay, so you see some differences with Mark's account? How many times does the rooster crow? Two crowings of the rooster in Mark, okay? Um, Now let's look at what Luke has to say about it. Luke chapter 22. And in Luke 22, starting in verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little while longer... A little later, uh, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Okay, so you see differences in Luke's account as well. So, what are we to make of these differences in the accounts? Let me start by saying this. If you ask me to tell you a story... And you ask my wife to tell you the, the, the same story, are you going to get the same details? No. We all know if you ask my wife, you're going to get a lot more details than if you ask me. And it's going to be a lot longer story with a lot more animation. All right? Um, and so uh, to expect that, but what if you did ask us to tell you the same story and we gave you the exact same details word for word? What's that going to make you think? is rehearsed, right? That we concocted this story, that we, we colluded together, and we're like, okay, this is how we tell this story, right? And like, this is how we put it together. Well, whereas what we see here in the Gospels, we see four guys each given their own accounts, and they're not worried about making sure they all colluded to get the, t- the details exactly the same. They're just saying, hey, here's what happened. And so, yeah, if they c- convey Peter's exact words a little bit differently, that's kind of the consensus of what Peter was saying, and that's what they're getting across, right? Um, another example was yesterday I was in um, a board meeting for our association of churches, 
and at, during the meeting, the person taking notes had to leave the meeting, and so they asked me to start taking notes. Now, as I started taking notes, did I write down every word that every single person said? No. I wrote down a summary, a, a, a consensus of what was decided by the board um, for that time. And so if someone gave like a five-minute spiel, I could summarize that down with like one sentence. So to take what Peter said, and he might have, I mean, it's Peter, right? He was like open mouth, insert foot guy, right? So I'm sure as, as he's talking, like he would just keep going on and on. And they wouldn't write all of that down. So for one of them to write down part of what he said, another one to write down another part of it said, it doesn't make one right and one wrong. It just makes them both right and reinforcing to one another, right? And that's what we see a lot in these so-called problems with the Gospels where they don't match up with each other is they're just giving other details that actually support and should lead us to believe that, hey, this is actually true. This is a real account of something that happened. But where we run into problems is where the details don't match up, where they seem to actually be in contradiction to one another, okay? And so for the first one, you got the rooster crowing, right? I mean, wouldn't it really be sad if all of faith and all of eternity is lost over how many times a rooster crowed? Like, if that's your reason for throwing out the Bible, like, I feel sorry for you. Um, but some people they really take it to that, that level. So let's think about this. How many of you guys have, have been around roosters? Like you lived or slept in a place where there were roosters? Okay, about half of us. Growing up, my grandfather, uh, his retirement was that he had a hobby farm of birds. Um, and so basically anything with feathers that you could domesticate, my grandfather had it. Okay, so as a little kid, this was incredible going to granddad's house because there were peacocks, there's turkeys, uh, ducks, chickens, pheasants, quails, um, lovebirds, parakeets, like, yeah, all over the place. He, he didn't ever, I don't think he ever had an ostrich or an emu, okay? Um, <laughs> those were a little, little beyond his scope, I think. Um, but so as a kid, I remember loving going to granddad's house and like I'd go help him gather eggs and that kind of stuff, and he would love to send me in the pen with the mean rooster that would attack me so he could laugh at me as the rooster beat me up. Um, so, yeah, so I don't know if that's child abuse or not or just funny, but uh, I lived through it and had more character for it. But anyway, um, but when I was a real little kid, the room that I would stay in at my granddad's house, right outside the window to that room was where the, the chicken pen was. And so first thing in the morning, what did I hear? heard the rooster. And when the rooster crows, does he just go, cock-a-doodle-doo, I'm done? No. He's like, the sun is back, the sun is back, the sun is back. Everybody, everybody, the sun is back. It came back again today, it came back again today. Hey, everybody, the sun is back, sun is back, sun is back. I want you to know the sun is back. It came back up again today. The sun, the sun is back, sun is back, sun is back. And so when we would talk about the rooster crowing in the morning, did we talk about one time that the thing made one noise? No. <laughs> well, you just say the rooster crowed, and everybody knows he was going off for a while, right? And so for three of them to just mention that the rooster crowed doesn't mean that it excludes the possibility that he made more than one noise, Okay. So why would Mark include this fact about two crowings? 
Mark is assumed to be the account of Peter himself. Mark was a direct disciple under Peter, and so what Mark wrote, we all assume to be uh, Peter's account that he dictated to Mark, who Mark then wrote it out. And so if we read it with that view in mind that, hey, this was Peter's recollection of the event, what would stand out to Peter? He's in the middle of sinning three times, and after one, he had a warning cry. It comes back to him after the fact that, oh yeah, I did hear that rooster once. And that should have woke me up to what Jesus had already told me, that before the rooster crowed, I was going to deny him three times. But what did I do? I just kept going. I just kept going. I denied him two more times after that. And it's so tr- that's so true for us in our lives as well, that God will tell us, like, hey, don't do this. Watch out for this. And then we get in the middle of starting to do that. And then what does God do? He gives us warnings and he says, hey, stop it. And what do we do? We're stubborn and we keep doing it until we get all the way to the end. And then we're flattened by how bad it turns out that we kept doing what God said not to do. So that's my proposal as to why Mark includes this fact about two roosters crowing. um, Because I, I believe that's what stood out to Peter through this event, that was a detail that stood out to him. Just like with John, the fact stood out to him that he was there and he got Peter in the courtyard. It was different details stood out to the different guys and that's what they're conveying to us. And I think that leads us to believe that, hey, this is true. So what about these other problems? Did you guys catch who were making the accusations? Okay, so who made the first accusation in all, all four accounts? Servant girl. Okay, who made the second one? The second one's confusing, right? Because Matthew and Mark make it another another girl, right? Uh, Luke makes it someone from the crowd. Could still be a girl. But then how does Peter respond to that person? Man, right? And then John just keeps it vague as somebody in the crowd that they, they made this accusation, right? So how do we reconcile two of them specifically saying it's a girl and then Luke recording that Peter respond to, responded to her as man? This seems like a contradiction. This seems like these stories don't match up. Um, so let's think about this. Did you guys know you were going to think when you came to church today? I didn't know if you knew that. So, um, but so let's let's paint this picture. Let's let's have this scenario. So suppose it is a girl that's making this this charge against him. Okay. Now, when when he when he responds as Luke records it, that interjection there, man, um, in the Greek is actually just kind of the word for mankind. So it actually can be used for male or female, but when he responds to the first servant girl, he does refer to her as woman, which is a different Greek word. Um, So it doesn't fully track that he's just using that as an interjection referring to a woman that we just translated as man. So I, I think man is a fine translation of that word. So that doesn't really explain it fully. But what about this? If Danny comes to me and says something to me and I said, oh man, before I respond to her, am I calling her a man? No. 
It's just an interjection. It's just a response. Um, it's just a, oh, man, come on. Like, don't, don't come at me with that, right? Like, that kind of thing. And that's normal communication. That's normal things that you would say. It doesn't indicate the gender of the other person, okay? Um, another possible scenario is something we do know about this culture and in this time was that a woman's testimony was not admissible in court, all right? Um, the, and where are they? They're at court. What is Peter worried about? He's worried about getting arrested like, like Jesus. And that's why he's denying Jesus. And so I see it being a very real scenario that a woman accuses him and the man standing right beside her would be the one that could actually arrest him. And so she comes at him with an accusation and he responds to him, man, I don't know him. Because this guy's the one that's supposed to make the judgment call between uh, the two as to what, whether or not he should be arrested or not. So even though a woman comes with the accusation, it could be easy that Peter is responding to a man in response. Okay, So there's several scenarios that could paint a picture for you of how this was a woman in all four accounts that made this accusation and why Peter responded the way he did as recorded in Luke. All right? Okay, problem number three, the accusations they bring at him. Oh, the fourth person too, I mean the third person, we didn't cover that one. Uh, so John specifies that this is a cousin or relative of the guy that had his ear cut off, so a relative of Malchus. Um, none of the rest include that detail. Another fact that would lead to John knowing the inner circle, that he knew Malchus's name, he knew the high priest's courtyard, he knew this guy was related to that guy, and so on and so forth. All right, um, And then... Uh, the other two, yeah, they just say that it was, it was either a man or somebody in the crowd. So there's no contradiction there. All right. Um, but what were, what were the accusations that they brought against Jesus and how do those match up? Okay. Um, first person, pretty con consistent through them. Second person, um, also pretty consistent. Now, the third person, what did he say? What, what was his accusation against Jesus? And one, he bases it on his accent. So we have, oh, I hear your accent. You're surely a follower of Jesus. Um, also, he's, he accuses him, you too are a Galilean. So because of that, you're a follower of Jesus. And then in John, John's guy says, wait, I saw you in the garden. Now, these seem like three different accusations. Your accent, where you're from, and I saw you with him tonight. And so how do you put that together? Okay, imagine you're Malchus's cousin, okay? You just saw your cousin have, have his ear cut off and then put back on. That's pretty cool. Um, and then you see the guy, like you're sitting around, around the fire. And the last thing you'd expect for is for the guy who did it to be there, right? So you hear this guy talking and you're like, man, I hear your accent. Yeah, I think you might be one of his followers. Your accent says you are from Galilee. You are a Galilean. And come to think of it, I saw you there tonight. Now, is that not a logical thought process for one person to have? So would it not be logical for this one guy, Malchus's relative, to say all three things? Yes. 
And so for him to, to make that, that process and for the, each of them then to record a different part of what he said isn't in contradiction. In fact, it reinforces the fact that, hey, this is probably something that really happened. And so I think you guys can see how I'm working through these things. And, that, and that's all it takes when people say, oh, well, the Bible is full of contradictions. Where do they go for that? They usually go to the Gospels. Because that's where you have different accounts of the same things happening. And what, what do they say? See, it says this, and this one says this, so it doesn't match up. You can't believe it. You can't trust it. Might as well throw the whole thing out. To which I'll say, there are people, scholars, who have sent their, spent their lifetimes studying these things. And for every known opposed, you know, contradiction that's proposed, there are very logical and very reasonable explanations. And what I believe is that they all come together for reason number two to believe John is that varying details point to a truthful account, not the opposite. When we see these different guys giving us their different accounts with the different details, and we really look into that, what that does is it paints a bigger picture for us of what really happened. We can learn more about it. We can know more about it. Um, and we're not just reliant just on John's eyewitness testimony but we have all four complementing each other. Matthew, too, was a disciple. He witnessed most of these things firsthand. I don't think Matthew followed him through the trial. I think Matthew was one of the ones who, who scattered um, after the arrest. Um, but then in Mark, as I was saying, we have Peter's account, um, where Peter passed on to Mark the things that he saw and the things that he said. And then Luke says at the beginning of his book, like Luke was a physician, he was an educated person. And he says at the beginning of, book, of his book, here's what I'm doing. I've compiled a report. So he's a historian. So he's gone around and he's interviewed different witnesses. He's interviewed different sources. And he's put it all together in one book together. Um, and so that's why we have these different accounts and how they complement each other. And so as we look at that, I think it leads to believing that this is true not the opposite. And so we're getting a bigger picture by having all four. Now, what should we learn from this actual account and not just about how things were recorded and whether or not we can believe it? So what, what should we learn from Peter and his denying Jesus? I've got four things for you, and they're going to be quick. One, no matter who we are, we can fall into sin. Peter was in Jesus' inner circle. He was one of, the, one of the three disciples closest to Jesus. He was kind of Jesus' right-hand man. And right away, he fell into sin. No matter who we are, we can fall into sin. Number two, you're more prone to sin when you don't have enough sleep. I've never heard this point made out of this passage before, but I think it's very valid. <laughs> what, had, what had Peter just done? He pulled an all-nighter, Right? He was in the garden. He keeps trying to fall asleep. Jesus keeps waking him up, telling him to pray. And, uh, and so he, all night, he's just been like, eh. and then it's, it's in the middle of all that. All of a sudden, temptation comes at him. And what does he do? He falls. And I think there's a great life lesson in that for us. That sometimes to be a good follower of Jesus, what you need to do is go to bed. All right? Number three. Jesus knew our sin before we sin, and he went to the cross for it. Jesus knew our sin before we ever sinned, and he went to the cross for it. Jesus told Peter, hey, you're going to deny me three times tonight before the rooster crows. And what was Jesus doing right when it happened? He was in the process of going to the cross to pay for that sin. 
And he knew the exact same for us. When he went to that cross, if you're a follower of Jesus, he knew all the ways that you were going to betray him, all the ways you were going to deny him, all the ways you were not going to follow what he said. And he took it to the cross for you. And then finally, I think Peter's example is an appropriate example of what we should do after we sin. John doesn't really go into that detail much, but the other three all do. What did Jesus do? I mean, what did Peter do after the fact? I love the, what Luke includes with the fact of Jesus from across the courtyard turning and looking at him at that moment too. Can you imagine? If you're in the middle of your sin and you see your physical Lord and Savior there in front of you turning and looking at you. And Peter's in the middle of it and the rooster crows. He's reminded of what Jesus already said. He sees Jesus looking at him and, and he just falls apart. He weeps bitterly. He runs out. He's destroyed. He's heartbroken. And it's easy for us today in the day of grace and the fact of fully understanding the gospel and the fact that Jesus paid for our sin and that there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for us to take that for granted. For us to sin and be like, oh, no, Jesus, here, take that one too. Sorry about that and move on. But I think there's a place and a time where we should weep over our sin where we should lament the fact that it took him going to the cross and laying down his life for us to pay for what I just did, to cover what I just did. That should bring tears to our eyes. That should bring us low. And the good news is we do have a Lord and Savior who meets us in that low point. And he restores us. That's what he did on the cross. He paved the way. He paid the price so that we could be restored to him. And what we're going to see in a few weeks is, is the account that John records of Jesus coming to Peter after the resurrection and restoring him. How many times did Peter deny him? Three. When Jesus comes back to him, he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Three times Peter says, yes, I love you. We'll look at, look at that in a few weeks when we get there. But that's who Jesus is. He comes and he restores us. But that doesn't mean that we should take that for granted. And that doesn't mean that we should abuse his grace. Sin is a serious thing. Denying Jesus was a very serious thing. And it is a reason for lamenting. It is a reason for crying. It is a reason for weeping. And so we shouldn't take it lightly. We also should not be crushed by guilt in a way that we do not know that we are forgiven. We are set free. We don't have to live in that any longer. Jesus has paved the way for us. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that it is trustworthy and true. The fact that we can believe what it says. The fact that, that it holds up. No, nothing has been scrutinized throughout history as much as the Bible, and it holds up every single time. Lord, for all those who say, oh, the Bible is so full of contradictions, Lord, I pray that you just show them the truth. Show them the reality of your word and how it does point to the truth of what happened, the truth of factual events, the truth of the reality 
of you sending your one and only son to die on a cross for us, to pay the punishment for us, to redeem us. And Lord, I thank you for that gift. I thank you that you don't leave us there in our sin, but that you rescue us. And Lord, just in the way that you ultimately restored Peter and through him you did build your church. Lord, I pray that you do the same through us. I pray all this in Christ's name, amen.